the kingdom. The kingdom is the reign and rule of God. And we think about his rule, it is over all of the universe, it's all over all of our world. But yet the kingdom of God is also the reign or rule in our individual lives. And so what we're going to be doing over these next number of months is going through the book of Matthew. And in that, we're going to kind of drill down in the Sermon on the Mount and then later on look at some of the parables and talk about this kingdom. 33 times in the book of Matthew, he says, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God really mean the same things. And so just interchange those, uh, those words and that phraseology. But it's going to be talking about the reign and the rule of God in your life. And this is something that has been looked forward to for years, hundreds of years. When you think about the Old Testament, you think about all the prophets, and you go all the way through there, they kept saying that one day there would come a Messiah. One day there would come a Messiah. And when you get to the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, these are some of the last words that were written in the Old Testament. Look what it says. The prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with the decree of utter destruction. What he said is there was a, there was a, a, a prophet by the name of Elijah who had, who had left. He's off the scene. He's in heaven. He says, but I'm going to send someone similar to an Elijah. And when he finished, there was 400 years of silence, 400 years to where God did not speak again through a prophet. And then all of a sudden, you come to the book of Luke, and you come to the book of Luke, there's a man by the name of Zechariah who is a priest, and he's doing his priestly duties, and while he's in the temple doing his priestly duties, an angel appears to him, and he says, hey, I know you and your wife, you're getting old, you don't think you can have any children, we're going to bless you with a son. But let me tell you about the son that you're going to have, and in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17, this is what it says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sounds a lot like what Malachi said 400 years earlier. Now all of a sudden he comes to this priest, Zachariah, and he says, the son you're getting ready to have, he's going to be Elijah-like. And he is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. The kingdom is getting ready to come. And so we pick up in Matthew chapter 3. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. And that son that was promised to Zechariah is who we know is John the Baptist. And so before we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, we're going to do a little bit of background work to figure out who this Jesus is and how did he get there. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, look what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. 
And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, all of a sudden, this is John the Baptist. He was raised in in a home where his father was a priest, and then he left Jerusalem, and he goes and lives in the wilderness. I mean, he's just kind of this man's man hanging out in the wilderness there of Judea. So if you took the Jordan River right here and you took Jerusalem right here, he was in all this area, all over here in this wilderness part of Judea. And that's where he lived. And he was like Elijah. He emulated Elijah. In fact, he even dressed like Elijah. Because it says in verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. 900 years earlier, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, somebody came back and they said, hey, we saw a man sitting there. He said, describe him. This is what they said. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. 900 years ago, it was quite a fashion statement. Had a little hair action with your belt, and no one else had been really wearing that, and now John the Baptist thinks he can pull it off after 900 years. He goes in the wilderness and he said, I'm going with the camel hair look with the leather belt. And I've kind of got that Elijah thing going for me. So all of a sudden they're seeing him. He is like Elijah. He's kind of emulating Elijah. He's preaching like him. He's even dressing like him. And then it says he's eating locusts and honey. He locusts and honey. He's just a man's man. He's out there in nature and he's living off of nature. He's about as organic as, as you could get. More I read about it, more I thought about it. I said, man, thank goodness this doesn't happen today. If it happened today, we'd have a reality show of John the Baptist out in Judea by the Jordan over there. Dr. Oz would have him on his show and say, hey, I like that locust honey diet. Yeah, you got protein of locust. You got the sugar of honey. You put those things together. This is great. It's organic. You'll lose weight on this. And, and, and then the fashion statement itself, camel hair, the belt, pita would be all over him. But besides that, it's a pretty good look. But you see, he wasn't into all of that. He was like a prophet like Elijah. And Elijah, he was a prophet that would stand down people. He'd preach strong the word of God. And that's what John the Baptist did. And it says that crowds were coming to him. Now, he was not easy to find. If you're living in the city, you had to make your way to get to the wilderness. So he wasn't at a major city. He was just out in the wilderness. And people traveled distances to sit and to listen to him. And to hear him talk about the coming Messiah. Now, it says that that he is the one that will go before. And if you look in verse 3, it's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that he's fulfilling. He says, but this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He said, this is like who John the Baptist is. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. During that day, when some famous person was coming through, they would often have a public announcer, someone that would be announcing that so-and-so is coming, so-and-so is coming. But he would do more than that. He would prepare the way. He would look at the roadway, and he would try to make it level. If there were ruts, they'd fill in the ruts. So it's almost like today when we, when we asphalt over a street, and it's got all these ruts and stuff to try to make it level for you. Well, that's what this person would do. And it's a forerunner. He comes before him trying to make everything good for him, trying to smooth the road. But what John the Baptist was doing is saying, I am trying to prepare the hearts of the people 
for when the kingdom of God comes. Because when Jesus comes, what he wants is he wants to see hearts that are ready for him. And he said, that's what I am called to do. So he's out there, he's preaching it, and he's getting after his message. And in his message, in verse 2, it's really simple. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me tell you again, what is the kingdom of heaven? It is the reign and rule of God. It is the reign and rule of God. So when he says that the kingdom of heaven is is at hand, he's saying the reign and rule of God is at hand. And we can look at it today in three different dimensions. We can look at it in the past. When Jesus Christ came, he was born of a virgin. And he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. And when he lived that sinless life, at the age of 30, he began his ministry. And he began to teach and tell them about the things of God. And he began to teach and show people who God was. He showed them by his teaching, by his miracles, by the love he had for them. But then he went to a cross and he died for our sins. He took all the sins of mankind, your sins, my sins, and died. And then three days later, he was risen from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he had conquered sin and conquered death. And it says, this is ushering in the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. Jesus has come. But that was the past, but now there's the present. And the present is, is that he wants to reign and rule in your life today. Today, right now, what God wants to do is he wants to reign and rule in your life. He wants his spirit to come into your life, to to give you a control in your life, give you guidance and give you direction, and to forgive you of all of your sins. And he says he wants that to happen, and he wants it to happen now. The reign and rule of God in your life, it can happen in the present so that you can fulfill the purpose for which you were created for the kingdom of God is at hand but he's also talking about the future and that's the consummation of this age one day Jesus is coming back and when he comes back then he sets up a new heaven and a new earth and the consummation of the kingdom of God so when you began to hear the kingdom of God is at hand What John is saying, John the Baptist is saying is that the Messiah, the Lord, the King, he is coming. And he's telling people this and everyone has been waiting for this. And they're trying to, trying to get ready. What do we need to to do to get ready? Well, he gives you really two things on how to prepare for this King. The same two things that we need to do today to prepare for the King to come into our lives And for us to say, I want you to have the reign and rule in my life. Number one is repent of your sins. His message seemed to be pretty simple. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when you hear the word repent, it means more than just saying, well, I feel sorry for my sins. Or I feel a little convicted because I've done things wrong. Or I'm sorry I got caught that I did these things wrong. That's not repentance. Repentance is not feeling sorry or feeling convicted. That can lead you to that point of repentance. But what repentance is, is when you are convicted by that, and then you ask for forgiveness, and you want to make a change of direction. Now, I like this definition. It's a really long one, but just follow with us. Repentance means to change your mind or attitude, which produces a change of conduct, which produces a change of direction, which produces a change of life forever. Now, follow that again. What is repentance? It is when I change my mind or my attitude, which will produce a change of conduct of how I act. 
And that will then produce a change of direction of how I live my life. And it will produce a change of life forever. It will completely, radically transform, change your life. I was heading in this direction and it was the wrong direction. And when I repent of my sins and ask Christ to come to my heart, I make that turn and I head in a whole new direction, a direction that matches his purpose and his goals for my life. Repent. It is a change of direction. Well, you say, well, what, what do you mean? What am I supposed to be? What does this mean when you say you change your mind, change your attitude? Let me give you this. I want you to change your mind about three things. Number one, change your mind about sin. Change your mind about sin. When he talks about repent, he says, change your mind about sin. What that means is we need to despise sin. We don't just sin and say, hey, I feel a little bad that I did stuff wrong. We need to get to the point to where we see we have a holy, righteous God. And whenever we sin, we are going against his holiness and his righteousness. And it needs to hurt. We need to despise it. We make that statement where it says, I want the things to break my heart that break the heart of God. That's a great way of looking at it. And it's not something to where we just say, well, I guess I get 10 sins today and then I'll feel guilty after that. No, anytime I sin, I just need to say, Lord, you know that's wrong. Now, listen, we're not going to be perfect. None of us are. I'm not. None of us. We'll make our mistakes. But how do we respond when we make that mistake? Just change your attitude towards sin and say, you know, I just despise sin. I know it breaks God's heart. And whenever that happens, I want to repent. I want to head in a different direction. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about yourself. We each need to realize our own inadequacies and that you need help from someone greater. You just can't go this alone. This world is too tough. Life is too difficult. There are too many curves that are going to come your way. There's too many obstacles that's going to trip you up that you cannot live this life just saying, hey, it's all me. You know, we realize when we get, just like that song was talking about, when the oceans rise up, you know, we need some help. And everything doesn't just revolve around myself. And it's not just how can I bow up and be better? I got to have someone greater than me. I've got to have a relationship with God to where God can guide me through those difficult times. Someone that can help me to handle the pressures and the temptations of life. Someone that can be there for me when I've got to face death of a loved one or the doctor gives me the report to say, hey, it's cancer and it doesn't look good. How, how am I going to make it through these, these times? You see, when I'm repenting, it means that I see my sin different. I see myself different. I'm saying it's not just about me. I just can't be bowing up strong enough. I've got to have a higher power. I've got to have someone there that is even bigger, stronger than me. And that's where you look and you look to, to Jesus Christ, who is the king. And it says he wants to have that reign and rule in your life and to help you through those. And that brings up the third, and that is change your mind toward a savior. That we need a savior. You know, it said that in everyone's life, there's this God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by a relationship with God. And sometimes we can get off in our life and we can just live life like we want to. And we keep thinking that we don't need this savior. But when you change your mind towards a savior and say, what is the savior? Savior is one that saves you from your sins. When I change my mind towards savior, I realize that I need Christ. I need a relationship with God. 
And when I begin to change my direction on that, then all of a sudden my whole life begins to get changed. So just think about it. If I'm heading in this direction, I'm just living life, sinning, going left and right, don't care, everything's about me, I don't need anyone else. And then all of a sudden I get just slam dunked because I'm heading in a bad direction. But once that conviction comes in my heart and I understand that this direction is taking me nowhere, repent means to change that direction. So what I've done, I've just changed my mind. I've, I've changed my mind towards sin. I don't want to do this anymore. All that's doing is taking me down the wrong path. Change my mind towards myself. You know, I can't just do this on my own. Everything is not circled around me, built around me. There's something better. There's a design. There's a, someone who has designed this, created this world, created me. And then I begin to change my mind towards the Savior and say, you know what? There is someone besides me and above me. There is someone that I need to owe my life to, someone that I have to serve. And that's where the king comes in. And that's the one I want to serve. And when I make that change of direction, and then I say, I want you, Lord, to reign in my life. I want you to be the one that takes full control of my life. Then he begins to help you head in that particular direction. You see, this is what, this is what John is, is preaching. He says, you've got to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what it is, I changed my mind towards my sin, towards myself and towards my savior. And then second of all, I changed my conduct and direction. You change your conduct and you change your directing. In verse eight, when all these crowds have come for baptism, look what John the Baptist says. In verse eight, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, you need to repent. And then he says, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say, what does that mean? That means if you say something with your mouth to say, you know what? Hey, I'm not going to go this direction anymore. I'm going to follow Christ. He says, guess what? There should be some fruit. There should be some evidence of that. And specifically, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. True repentance results in results. True repentance results in true results. There's going to be results. Your life's going to be different. A Christian without any fruit is not a Christian. There has to be some change that takes place in your life. And so this is what John is saying. When people are coming out there, he's saying, hey, this is not just you coming just to get baptized. Once this happens, a change in your life, there's going to be fruits. There's going to be things that are going to happen. People are going to know that there's a difference. And last of all is to change your perception. When you repent, it also means you have to change your perception. Now, it's interesting in this story, crowds are coming, people are getting baptized, man, everyone's talking to him. And then you're introduced to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, you say, well, now, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees... Uh, and the Sadducees both had representatives on what was called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the Supreme Court. Okay. And the Pharisees did not like the Sadducees and the Sadducees didn't like the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they were real strict on the law and, uh, and there was an oral law interpretation of, of, uh, of all the 10 commandments and they felt you need to live that out. They were really big on that. 
Now, the Sadducees, they were into politics more, and they had some activities within the temple that they did, and they disagreed with some of the Pharisees. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, so they didn't, they didn't really like each other very much. And personally, I would really not want, would not want to join the group called the Sadducees. You would just, when you say that, you're sad, you see? You know, it just... It's just like everywhere you'd go, hey, sad, you see? And I go, no, I'm really pretty happy. No, you're sad, you see. So, so you got your Pharisees and your Sadducees over here. And, and each one's got their, got their own hang-ups, but the one thing they agree on is that they are God's chosen people. Hey, and since they're God's chosen people, this repentance stuff is not really for them. See, they don't need that to be right with God because they're God's chosen people. Well, they could show up in the crowd. John the Baptist, he never, never wanted to mince words. He sees them and he says, you brood of vipers. That's a good way to kind of start a conversation, okay? So this is not what we teach in sales, all righty? When I went eight and a half years in sales, they didn't teach me that when you're trying to connect with someone, say, hey, you brood of vipers, buy this system. Well, they came and he just in their face. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? A little bit of sarcasm here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what he's saying is, you guys are showing up, and I know there's no repentance in there. I can see because there's no fruit. There's no change in your life. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. You know what he just told them is, he says, you got to change your perception. Whether you're in the kingdom of God or not is not dependent upon your genealogy or your spiritual pedigree. And he's saying, just because you're a child of Abraham and you can take your genealogy and you trace it all the way back and say, hey, we're, we're sons of Abraham. He said, it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a spiritual pedigree of who you came from. He says, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You realize that? God has no grandchildren. God only has children. And so just because you as a parent have accepted Christ, that doesn't mean that your child's automatically a Christian because they grew up in a Christian home. For even some, just because you say, well, I got baptized up over here. Well, if you got baptized and you really had not accepted Christ as your Savior, you just got wet. That's all that happened. Or you may say, well, I'm even a member of Shays Mountain Baptist Church. I tithe. I'm, I'm, I'm a volunteer. I teach Sunday school. Listen, you can say all of those things, but unless you have repented and come to a point in your life to where you say, I trust Christ as my Savior, you're still not a part of his kingdom. You're still not a part of his family. And, and so these guys that were standing out there, this is what John the Baptist was telling them. You're, you're not a part of it. And it's not because of your genealogy. Uh, this week has been a great week, Friday and Saturday with Franklin Graham. And, and both nights, he gives a, just a snippet of his testimony. And he said, you know, my dad, Billy Graham, I was raised in a Christian family with Ruth and Billy Graham. But for 22 years, I lived in rebellion and when I was a 22-year-old, he said, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I came before God and I said, I give you all that I am. 
And I want you to come into my life and I want to live for you. I'm not going this way any longer. And at that point, he made his decision for Christ. Now, if anybody would have a spiritual pedigree that could just sort of slide into heaven, you would think it would be him. But he understood that. He said, no, I had to make that decision for myself. It needs to change your perception. Okay. So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance talking about changing our mind, changing our conduct, changing the direction of our lives and changing our perception. And the very last thing is you just need to open your heart to receive Jesus. You see, when he says you repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is preparing the road, trying to prepare the hearts so that when you see the king, your heart is open to receive him. Now, what's sad is a lot of people just have closed hearts. And when they hear the message, it just doesn't get through. And what he's asking, he's preparing this way so you'll have a heart that's open to be able to receive Christ. And so you say, okay. What does that mean to open your heart to receive Jesus? This is what I think it means. Number one, because you want to. (laughs) You want to. You know, too often, you know, people think that uh, you come to church and somebody's going to try to give you like bad medicine and it doesn't taste good, but it's going to be good for you. They can talk to you about receiving Jesus and and becoming a Christian. And it's almost like it's something that I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to do it just like taking medicine that's yucky, but I know it's going to help me. That's not that way at all. There is such an anticipation and excitement that the king is coming. That when John the Baptist is preaching this message, he says, folks, this is incredible. And you're going to want to you're going to want to accept this. You're going to want to be a part of this. You see, it's because you want to. You say, well, why would I want to? Well, first of all, because he's a mighty king. Look what he says, John the Baptist, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Let me translate that to that. During those days, servants would take their master's sandals and they would carry them, okay? So if you need something, they'd carry your sandals. That's what a slave did. That's what a servant did. John the Baptist said, the one who's coming after me is so mighty that I am not even worthy of picking up his sandals. I'm lower than a slave in compared to him. Now, let me tell you. Sometimes people would sit there and say, well, you know, it's not really a manly thing to have this relationship with Christ. Listen, John the Baptist is a man's man. Not a lot of guys can pull off the Campbell hair and belt thing, okay? Not a lot of men could be out there and bring the crowds. I mean, this guy, people were traveling long distances to hear him preach this message. And so he tracks these huge crowds and he's this man's man. And he says, the one who comes after me is mightier than me. I can't even pick up his sandals. You think I'm something good? I'm the lowest of the low. This is a mighty king who's coming. All right? 
as kids, you learned that song. Talk about the mighty king. He is the king of the jungle. He is the king of the sea. Wubba, wubba, wubba. He is the king of the universe. King for you and me. And he is J-E-S-U-S. Yes! He is the king of me. He is the king of the universe, the jungle and the sea. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Amen. All right. You know that song. That's it. Kids know this. Okay? I mean, it's for children. He is the king of the jungle, the king of the sea, the king of the universe for me and you and me. But he's also the king for young people. He's the king for adults. He's the king for the man that needs to lead his family. He's the king for the mom that's that's helping raise those kids. He's the king for all of us. He's this mighty king, and it's an attractive offer to say, I want to be a part of your kingdom. You see, we want to open our hearts to receive him because we want to. This is incredible. The king of the universe says, I want to have a relationship with you. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist is preparing the pathway and saying, you guys got no idea what's getting ready to happen. And then for the next three years, God himself in the flesh, as as Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, walked on this earth. He taught, he preached, he touched people, he healed people. And he told them all about who God was and then he died for our sins. Man. I want to have my heart open for something like that. And you see, it's because you want to, you want to open up your heart. He is the mighty king. But the second thing is he takes away the sin of the world. Whoa, this is where every one of us is. He takes away the sin of the world. In the book of John, it talks about when John the Baptist sees Jesus, and this is what he says. He says this. He says, behold. I saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whoa. What does that mean? That means every one of us has a sin problem. And with every one of us wrapped up in our sin, he says, here comes Jesus. He's the lamb. He's going to come and he takes away the sins of the world. He's the only one that can do this. He's the only one that's traveling this path that has died for our sins. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that has then been raised from the dead to live forever to show that he conquered sin, he conquered death. He's the only one. And so John is telling us, he says, man, you need to have an open heart to receive him because you want to. He is a mighty king. He takes away the sin of the world. And last of all, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He's a giver of the Holy Spirit. Look what John says. John says, you know what? I'm baptizing with water, but at the end of verse 11, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Listen, I'm doing the water baptism for your confession of sins. But let me tell you what he's going to do. He's baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now you're sitting there saying, did those people know what he's talking about? What do you mean he's baptizing the Holy Spirit? This is something that people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. The prophet Ezekiel Chapter 36, look what he says. Look what God is saying to his prophet. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hundreds of years ago, a prophet said, one day God's going to put his spirit inside of us to help us walk in our in his statutes and be careful to obey the rules. And they've been looking for this for hundreds of years. And now all of a sudden, John the Baptist says, guess what? It's coming true. 
when he comes, he's baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. Which means when you receive Christ, at that moment, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, comes in to take residence in your life. And when he comes in and takes residence of your life, he convicts you of truth. You say, well, how will I know if that's sin or not? God's spirit will begin to convict you to say, hey, that's the wrong direction. This is the right direction. He'll guide you in truth. You'll open up God's word. You'll begin to read it. His spirit will help you to understand that. He'll relay what your purpose is in life. He'll let you know about the unique spiritual gifts that you've gotten. And he will call those to mind and allow you to begin to use those for God's purpose and for your joy. Man, all of this, he's he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about open your hearts to receive Christ, I'm just sharing with you today, just open your heart. You have to make the choice. You choose, accept or reject But I'm saying, at least open your heart. Don't be closed to it. Say, I just at least want to be open. He is the mighty king. I want to open my heart to him. He is the one that can take away the sins of the world. He is the one that will give us the Holy Spirit. And when he says baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, some think the fire could be judgment. Others believe that fire means it's refining and purifying. And when you're sitting there saying, I want something different in my life, I want there to be a purity in my life, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he begins to refine you with fire and you become that pure vessel. Man, I mean, it's just good stuff. I want you to open your heart to receive Christ because you want to. But last, I want you to open your heart because you need to. Because judgment is real. Judgment is real. Verse 12. Talking about the one who's coming, which is Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Agricultural knowledge. There's a threshing floor. Take your grain, your stalks of wheat, you place them down there. Either an animal or something else tramples all over them to try to break the grain from the stalk. What Jesus says is that, or what John the Baptist says is Jesus will take his winnowing fork. That is like a pitchfork with six prongs on it. He'll take that and what they'll do is they would go and they would stick it right under all those stalks and they throw it up in the air. And when you throw it up in the air, the heavier grains fall down. The shaft, all that other little stuff, little dusty stuff and everything. When it goes up in the air, the wind blows and it blows it off to the side. You keep doing it. Throwing that up, grain falls, chaff blows over there. And he says, and what Jesus is going to do, and if you look at this verse, there's a lot of his and he, his winnowing fork, and it's on his threshing floor, and it talks about he's going to gather his grain. He will then gather his grain. Those are the ones that have received him as Savior. And he says he'll take that, and he'll take that into his barn. He said, well, what are you going to do with all this dusty stuff over, all this chaff and everything? He will then throw it into a fire that is unquenchable. What that means, it never stops. And he says there was, there's a line that will be drawn of judgment. Those that receive Christ, 
and those that don't. If you receive Christ, what you're saying is, I, don't, I can't pay for my sins on my own. Because there's no way I'm coming to face a holy God in my sinful condition. And Jesus says, I've done that for you. And he's taken all of your sins and he's paid that penalty. And whenever you die and you come face to face with God, he doesn't see you with all those sins. He sees the blood of Christ that's covered you. And he sees that you're righteous. And he says, come in. It's like Jesus said, I'm gathering, putting them in my barn over here. All those who've made the decision. He said, well, what if I say no to him? He says, if you say no to him, you're just like the chaff that's been blown over here. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to take my sinful life, stand before a perfect, holy, righteous God, and I'm going to argue my case. It's not a really good, good decision to make. Because when you stand in the presence of holiness, purity, righteousness, I don't even know if you'll even make an argument because you'll see your sin so clear that you're going to know it. And there's not any second chances. Is that God, who loves you greatly, will then have to probably do one of the hardest things he does, and that is, you know, I never knew you. And then you will spend eternity in what the Bible calls hell separated from God. Again, it's your choice. It's not his. He's given you every, every, every opportunity. John the Baptist has prepared the way. Jesus has come. We've got God's word, got scripture that lays it out to us and says, this is it. And it says in that verse that he clears his threshing floor, which means he didn't leave anything behind. He doesn't give second, third chances. When it's done, it's done. And that thing that jumped out at me in verse two as John the Baptist is preparing the way, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's imminent. It's here right now. He says, it's right now. Now, for every one of us, hey, it is right now. We can make this decision. But I want to tell you something else. The way our world is going right now, seems like Jesus could come back anytime. And we sit there and we love and we want him to come back. And that's great for those that are believers. But for those who've never made a decision for Christ, time's up. It's imminent. It's at hand. So when you think about the person of Jesus Christ, I ask you to open your heart to receive him because you want to. Because of all the incredible things that we already shared. But then also to know because there is going to be judgment. And you don't want to spend eternity separated from God. Your desire is to spend eternity with him and with his son. So I want to ask you at this time, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, every person here. There are a number of you that have made decisions for Christ, and I understand that. But there may be some of you here that you know you've never made that decision for Christ. And as we have walked through this message, you said, you know, Danny, I think you described my life as the, the direction that I'm going, but I've never stopped, had that change of direction, asked Christ to come into my heart. And you'd like to do that today. And I want to offer you that opportunity to do that today. If you want to begin that 
journey with him. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I'd like for you to pray this silently, just between you and the Lord. And if it's your desire, pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that my sins are separating me from you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I am repenting of my sins and desiring to change direction. I want you to come into my life to be the Lord and to be the boss of my life and to direct me and to help me fulfill the purpose for which you created me. Now everybody's still got their heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm just going to ask real quick. If you prayed that prayer, said I asked him to do that, I want you just to raise your hand. Just real quick. No one else is looking around. Just me. Just me. Just put your hand up. Good. Good. Others? Hands up. All across here. Amen. If you asked Christ to come into your heart, at that moment, he came in, and you'll become a new creation. But I want to help you take another step on that. And that is, if you want to talk to someone about this decision, I'm going to ask you at this time just to stand up. And to come right up here at the front. You say, ooh, are you serious? Yeah. If you want to get serious about that, if you want to talk to someone, I just ask just to come right up here. And we're just going to stand in just a moment. I'm going to match up with someone and, and let, them, let them pray for you. So if you want to, you can come forward. Take just a moment. We're going to wait. A number of you have prayed. You've asked them to come into your heart. Standing in front of all these folks could be tough. I understand that. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that as you have moved throughout our congregation and you've spoken to our hearts, that you desire that we have that relationship with you. And I thank you for these who've raised a hand and then have said, God, man, I want you to come into my heart. And Lord, I know that through a prayer that you can enter in, and you can save us from our sins and start us on a new life. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us that are believers to know that when we think about the kingdom of God, it's the reign and rule of God. That means you've got first place in our life. And Lord, Lord for some of us, we may have been getting far away from that. And I just want to pray that you will bring us back to where we allow you to have that priority, that first place. Return the joy of our salvation. Help us to get back on that road. Serving you, loving you. Doing the things you've called us to do. We thank you, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.